May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We're continuing this week in our sermon series, preaching through the book of Romans. And to introduce the theme for today, I want to ask an admittedly heavy question. I want to ask when the, the last time that you heard or maybe read about or perhaps actually witnessed something that was wrong and what it felt like to read or witness something that was wrong, morally wrong, not just tragic or sad, but morally wrong. Winfred Rembert is an artist with a simple, elegant purpose. In his words, with my paintings, I try to make a bad situation look good. Rembert grew up in the Jim Crow South and was active in the civil rights movement, so active, as a matter of fact, that he was imprisoned for um, protesting against segregation. And his art, most of his art, which is frankly worth Googling, it's, it's, I find it pretty mesmerizing, but it depicts in beautiful ways a very bad thing, the seven years that he spent uh, on a chain gang in Calhoun State Prison in Morgan, Georgia. And Winford Rembert recently died, and so there was a lot of write-ups about him, and in one of the write-ups, he detailed some of the horrors that he experienced uh, while in prison. And that's what gave rise to my introductory question, what it feels like to read about stuff like that. And when I was reading about what he endured, my blood started to boil, and yours would surely have too. For instance, one of the things that hap would happen to him and to lots of prisoners at this prison is that they would randomly and regularly be rounded up and put in what is called the sweat box, which was this very small wooden structure, too low to stand up, too small to lie down, and they would be stuck in there for days at a time with no food. Their only water would be a fire hose twice a day that they would drink from, but also would clean them because they, there was no bathroom, of course, in the sweat box. When you read about that type of, the, the best word is torture, it makes you angry, so angry. And if you were to ask me, you know, why is that so upsetting? What is so wrong about that? And of course, there's lots of things that are wrong about that. But I would hope that I would say fundamentally, Winford Rembert, like every human being, bears the image of God and therefore has a dignity that should be respected and honored. But again, I mean, there's lots of reasons why that is wrong. And um, there are lots of people, this is, maybe goes without saying, who are not Christians, who don't think of themselves as religious people, who would be similarly outraged by that type of travesty. And you don't have to be a Christian to think that torture is wrong. So the question I really want to get at in this introduction is where our moral beliefs come from. If we consider ourselves Christian people, a lot of our morality comes from the Bible or comes from God. But a lot of people who are not Christian are ferociously moral. So where do our moral beliefs come from? This may sound like a very bad version of a philosophy lecture, but I promise you this is actually related to what Paul is doing in this chapter in Romans, in section of Romans 2. Because what Paul is doing is talking about ideal conduct and ideal human behavior, character. He's talking about morality. 
And I want to work through the passage in some detail under three headings. I want to say that morality is inevitable. I want to say that morality is harsh. And I want to say that there is a surprising better way. I want to encourage you to take out the passage because I am going to be looking at specific scriptures and working through it sequentially, and it might be helpful to have it in front of you. Okay, morality is inevitable. Let's start with that opening line. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In that sentence and in that whole paragraph, Paul makes a very basic but very important distinction. There are two groups of people. There is a group of people who are under the law, who have the law, who strive to live in accordance to the law. There are also people, he says, who do not have the law, who do not live under the law, who by birth do not have the law. Now, what is the law? Well, the law, capital L law, is God's moral law as revealed in the pages of Scripture. So what Paul is saying is something that we all know intuitively to be true, right? There are people who take the Bible very seriously and strive to live under its authority, and there are people who do not. And of course, we're very familiar in Texas with people who kind of kind of know what the Bible is, maybe even grew up in church, but at this point in their lives are like, I want nothing to do with that. But actually more significant for Paul are people who have never heard of the Bible, for whom the Bible is a, would be a completely foreign concept. That one God would almost encode himself in a book that's almost nonsensical. That's like, when Paul says Gentiles, he's not just meaning ethnically non-Jews. In this passage, he's referring to people for whom the Bible is just not anywhere part of their framework for life. So you guys, are you guys following me? These two groups, Jews, Gentiles, Bible people, non, but we're all Jews in this sense. Okay, now what Paul says is that both groups of people have, well, there will be a day when both of those people will be judged by Jesus Christ and the secrets of their heart will be laid bare. What does that mean, the secrets of their heart? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul talks about every one of us. This is a very sobering reality, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, it will not just be our empirical lives, not just what we did or the words that we used. The secrets of our heart, our thoughts, our emotions, our affects, our entire biography, as it were, will be out there. That is a day, Paul says, that is coming. Now here is where I think this passage gets really interesting. Because what Paul says, in essence, is that people will not be judged by standards they do not accept. People won't be judged by standards they do not accept. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. Of course it's obvious, or not obvious, but it's, it's simple to imagine people who take the Bible really seriously for the Bible to be the standard by which they are judged. But I think what Paul is saying is that people who do not take the Bible seriously are, frankly, people who have never heard of the Bible. It's not as if they get a free pass. They, too, will perish, even though they are not under the law. Um, Why? Because they didn't follow the Bible? No. But because they didn't follow, and I'll talk a little bit about this in a minute, their own standards. They knew enough of what God's moral law required. The requirements of it are written on their heart. And so Paul says they will be judged, just not by the standards of the Bible. Now, how might this work? 
what might this actually look like? Um, I, I strove to come, come up, came up with an illustration to hopefully get this point across. So you have to tell me, you'll have to judge for yourself if this works. Okay, so you, I think we've all had the experience, our phone's in our pocket, and we're talking with someone in real life about camping or the keto diet or a new Nissan, and all of a sudden we start seeing ads for new Nissans like on our phone. It's like, is my phone listening? Do you guys have this experience? I don't know if that's actually true, but there's a lot of coincidence where that seems to happen. Now, I want you guys to imagine someone secretly putting an app on your phone. And this app records every sentence that you say in which the word should or ought is used. So those people, they should be doing this. Or my aunt, she really ought to that. Now imagine this app runs secretly for a year. And then one day you get an audio file in your email and it just plays every sentence in which you've ever uttered the word should or ought. And the question is, how well would you live up to your own standards? How well would you measure up to that which you expect other people to do? And what Paul is saying is that there will be a day when not just for one year, but for the entire course of our lives, and not just our words, but our thoughts, our feelings, every time we've said We've said to ourselves, oh, they, that person really ought to be doing X, or they really should be doing Y. The standards that we use to evaluate other people, those same standards will be used for us, how well we measure up to them. So I think what Paul is saying here is, is actually, well, there's aspects of it that are controversial, but what he's saying here that I think we can all intuitively agree with is that most people do not live up to the standards that they set for other people, right? Most people expect others to be things that they are routinely not. So God says to those who do not know his word, people that have never heard of the Bible, it's not like you will be damned because you do not believe the good book, but it's like, well, how well did you abide by the standards that you use for others? The, the requirements of God's law that are written on your heart. Because I think that is my final point in this first header. That's the real substantive claim that Paul makes in this passage. That by virtue of bearing the image of God, we might not by birth have access to the Bible, but by virtue of bearing the image of God, the requirements of God's law, some innate sense of right and wrong is just woven into the fabric of our lives. Of course, a lot of people would dispute that, but I think the Bible is saying that that is a, that is a true thing. And I think, we, I think there's lots of evidence for that. What do I mean? What I mean is there are non-Christians everywhere who honor their parents and who strive to tell the truth and who cultivate generosity and gratitude and contentment, who want to be faithful spouses. Not all the time, not perfectly, but the same is true for the people of God. But there is... This is what Paul is saying. I think this is what the Bible is teaching. There is in every human being, uh, not every single human being, but there is in human beings as human beings a kind of basic moral compass. And it is that moral compass, especially for those who are not under the law, who are Bible people, that becomes the means that God uses on that final day. So this first point, morality is inevitable. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean... I've been a sophomore in college, like I've flirted with relativism, but in reality, no one actually lives like that. 
No one actually lives like that. Everyone lives as if there are objective rights and wrongs. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? And I think that's kind of a straw man. Like, lots of people who are very secular have extremely defined moral convictions, even if they're not empirical. Like, you can't, you know, find human rights in a laboratory somewhere. But we all have these moral absolutes. And I think that's, the Bible teaches that, that morality is inevitable, regardless of your framework. Okay, moving to the second paragraph. And my second point is that morality, as this all-encompassing framework can be very harsh. It can be a very harsh taskmaster, especially when morality be- is kind of infused with religious significance, which it is for, I'm assuming, most of us here today. Uh, and what Paul shows us here in the second paragraph is why a very religious, inflected form of morality can be very deflating, can be very harsh. And I, I want to keep this brief because I tried to talk a lot about this last week, so I don't want to just, you know, go over the same material again. But I do want to say this. I think when you, when you heard that paragraph, you know, you who say do not steal, do you steal? I think you might think initially Paul must be critiquing here like, hypocrisy. You know, there are people who do not live by their ideals. And I think, of course, that is happening to a point But I think that kind of limits what Paul is actually saying. I don't think that Paul and his imagined debate partner, the you in the second paragraph, I don't think that person was under the illusion that there are any human beings anywhere who ever actually do everything that they believe. Like hypocrisy characterizes every single human moral community. You know what I mean? Like if COVID has taught us anything, it is that hypocrisy pervades every single human moral community, right? So it's not as if, oh, oh, no, there is some world where people actually do everything that's required by God's law. No one actually thought that in Paul's day. What Paul is critiquing, I think, is this notion, I think this has relevance for us, is that if you are a religious person and if you are under the law, if you know God's word and you take God's word seriously and you are at least trying to do the right thing, then it becomes very easy to think, well, I must be better than those people out there, those Gentiles. And God is like probably on my side more than he is on their side. It's a question of worth or value. And if my worth or my value is more significant because I'm at least trying to do the right thing, I think that is what Paul is at root questioning. Because if you go down that road, if you correlate your sense of value or significance to your performance, then uh, that, that is a very harsh and deflating way to live. Well, it can be. I think in my pastoral experience, there are two ways that can go. Either A, you just deceive yourself because it can be very uncomfortable to stare the truth in the face. And so that's how you get this hypocrisy and this profound disintegration where you almost are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's why that happens in religious communities all the time. Or you do stare the truth right in the face and you are just kind of perpetually fighting that sense of despair. Like how how worthwhile am I? Or how sincere is my faith if I just keep on messing up in the same exact ways? And I do not think that Paul is kind of excusing or making light of our failures. But I think what he is saying is you need another way of finding significance. You need another way of, of grounding your, your relationship with God. And that, that leads to my final point, this surprising better way. Before I get to it, 
let me just go back to my, what I said at the outset and just the context for this passage. I know it's, it's a hard thing to, to say even, but it's important that there is this day that is coming. The day, we say it in the creed every single week when Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And there are some of us, not some of us, there's some of our hearts that long for that day because that will be a very good day. In Isaiah, I, last night I was at one of the movable feasts and it was uh, rich aged wine and fatty foods and that is a Bible promise in Isaiah 26 that on this day, that day, there will be this feast for all people. It's the day when all wrong things will be put to right. But it is also a day when you are, if you are not on God's side, it may not be a good day, right? And, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this wonderful line about how the news of God's coming to earth is sobering for anyone with a conscience. Because if we really think about, well, what side am I on? Of course, I long for that day, but my actual life is sometimes at war with the values of the king. And what my hope would be pastorally is that, you know, there's this great line in the prayer book, without shame or fear to rejoice to behold his appearing. We want to long for that day with confidence, with gospel confidence. And we want to have that, the poise throughout the course of our life that, life that comes from that confidence that God will vindicate us. And I think Paul shows us how to get that. That's the better way. And the surprising way that Paul shows us that is because he uses this very particular metaphor. He says, you want that? You need to be circumcised. That's the gospel, is the circumcision of Christ. Um, what does he say? A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Do you guys get all that? Okay. Uh, I hope not, because I'm going to explain it in the next seven minutes. Okay, well, um, uh, I do want to kind of unpack this metaphor of circumcision because I think it's pretty powerful. But let's start with circumcision that is, in Paul's language, outward and physical. What was the purpose of circumcision as it was prescribed in the Old Testament? It wasn't just hygienic. Maybe it is hygienic. I don't know. But uh, fundamentally, circumcision was, the, it was like a tattoo. It was the mechanism by which family said, we belong to God. It was a sign that said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and we will be in a covenant relationship with God, and we will express that by honoring God's law, by following God's way. Now, how did circumcision represent that relationship, that covenant relationship? And this is the key. Circumcision did that by representing the cost of breaking the covenant. The covenants, this kind of relationship with God, they were not signed like contracts, nor were they established uh, with vows like in marriage. The verb was cut. Covenants were cut. They, covenants were ratified in the ancient world by two people coming together and slaughtering animals. It's like gross, somatic, blood stuff. And the, the, what that was doing was you were performing the cost of breaking covenant and saying, if I break this covenant, let that fate of that slaughtered animal befall. You know, it's like kind of gnarly stuff. Well, it's going to get a little graphic, but what is circumcision? It's bloody. It's kind of gross. 
And it is literally a cutting off. And so by being a circumcised Jewish male, you're saying, me and my family, we are pledged to God. And we are going to strive to honor God. And if we do not, we will be cut off from the living God. Okay, so that's the outward sign. But what Paul says, it says, we need to be circumcised in Jesus. And we need to be circumcised in our hearts. Now, what, how does, what is that? Well, I think he actually explains it better in Colossians chapter 2, which is in many ways a parallel to Romans chapter 2. And what he says there is this. In Christ, you were circumcised. And he's talking to women and men. He's saying, all of you who are in Jesus, you have been circumcised, but a circumcision not performed by human hands. The language of Romans 2, a circumcision of the heart. Now, what's the logic there? How can a literal male-only circumcision be likened to something that we, by faith, women and men, receive in Jesus? What is being said there, first and foremost, is that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, it was a kind of circumcision. There were swords. There was blood. There was a, a slaughter. And Jesus Christ was cut off. What did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, on the cross, Jesus Christ received the penalty in some ways, or the cost. He bore the cost, is a better way to put it, of breaking covenant. And what makes that so meaningful and so profound? Well, two things. One, Jesus Christ was the only person on the planet who never broke covenant with God, who was faithful and just and kind, whose life had the beauty of moral perfection. So his death on the cross was in defiance of his merits. That's one thing. Second thing, and perhaps more importantly, is that he didn't stay slaughtered. He didn't stay cut off. The Lord is risen. So even though he bore the cost of the covenant, sin could not hold him down. He rose up out of the grave and now lives a totally different kind of life before God, where the old rules simply do not apply. Now, why does that matter for you and for me? Well, what is the gospel? What is true of Jesus becomes true of us when we receive him in faith. And so we are circumcised. We have passed through the judgment or the cost of breaking covenant with God. And in Jesus... We live this new kind of life where the old rules do not apply. And so what that means is that we don't have to fear that day of judgment. Hypocrisy is still serious and sin is still very destructive. But our ultimate destiny is secure because it rests on his merits, not ours. Amen? Because when we stand before God and the secrets of our hearts are revealed, we might learn some very uncomfortable truths about ourselves, but our fundamental worth and value has been purchased with the blood of Jesus. And what's, second, this is my truly my final thing, it'd be enough for Paul to stop there with what we would call a doctrine or a theory of the atonement, to use fancy language, but Paul doesn't stop there. Because what Paul ultimately promises is not some kind of noetic, just remember that 2,000 years ago. 
What Paul says is something is going to happen in here by the Spirit. In your depths, you're going to be circumcised. Uh, It's not just the requirements of the law written on our conscience in some like human nature kind of way. It's Jeremiah 31 or 29, whatever it is. The idea of the law being written on our hearts itself and with a corresponding ability to carry it out. And I'll just speak from personal experience. What does that mean, the law being written on your heart, the spirit being present in that way? It means this, spirit of God will not leave you alone. And when you start to walk in ways that are displeasing to God and destructive to yourself and others, the spirit will keep you up at night. (laughs) Or the spirit will bring to mind Bible passages and will bring people into your life to say, what are you doing? Stop doing that. And positively, the Spirit of God present in your life will produce kindness and gentleness and peace and joy and self-control in ways that are oftentimes completely alien to your own perception. But people will start to notice, oh my gosh, you're becoming so much more content or you're so much able to embrace life on its own terms and abide uncertainty. That's remarkable. The Spirit of God will not leave you alone. It's not just things that we do. The Spirit does things to us. So morality is inevitable. We all have deep moral commitments. That's a good thing. But it can be harsh if your value is wrapped up in how well you are performing those things. And so the new, the better way is to receive Jesus by faith to make what is true of him become true of you. And in his spirit, with his spirit, start to actually walk in peace and in alignment with the life that God wants for you. Amen? All right.